Hello, everybody. Megan Thompson here with Megan Thompson Coaching, and we have Dr. Nicolo Bernardi as well. Say hi. Hello. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you, Megan, for having me here today. Yeah, so exciting. So for those of you who uh, are not familiar, Nicolo is the mindset coach in our uh, work at MTC, and uh, he serves our families consistently in both of uh, in, in all of our offers. And what we're going to talk today about is is one of Nicolo's specialties, which is the experience of being, wanting to be the perfect parent. Right. So if you are a parent of a sensitive child who is stuck in the meltdown cycle and are wondering. Am I cut out for this? If, am I the right person to support my kid? Uh, you know, maybe my kid needs a, a different person to help them manage that those big emotions. This is incredibly important for you to um, to to stay tuned in because what we're going to be covering today is all about how to break out of that cycle of perfectionism yourself, so you can lead your child into the same um, same pattern. Hello, and welcome to How to Parent Your Highly Sensitive Child Like a Ninja. I'm your host, Megan Thompson, licensed clinical professional counselor and registered play therapist supervisor. We at MTC teach parents how to eliminate the daily meltdown and shutdown cycle for your sensitive children and teens. Highly sensitive children make up 15 to 20% of the population, according to research that has been gathered for over a century. And this podcast answers one question, how can you raise emotionally intelligent children? Stop walking on eggshells and help your child express their needs safely without punishments, yelling, or coddling. If you want to know the answer, you're in the right place. Here at MTC, what we do, we help parents eliminate the daily meltdown cycle or daily shutdown cycle for sensitive kids and teens around the world. We've been doing this for years now, and uh, we help parents do that in as little as eight weeks, depending on the kid's age and, and the work that we do. And um, it's incredibly important to, to pay attention to what we're covering here, right? The meltdown cycle, when I say daily meltdowns, these are meltdowns uh, your child is hitting, kicking, screaming, running away. Uh, your teenager is just shutting down, saying nothing's working. I'm, I can't do it. I might as well not even try. And uh, that can be true for young kids as well. They can be frozen and, and shut down as well. Uh, but most of the behaviors that we see in our work, uh, those meltdowns are, are outward rather than inward. Uh, for younger children. And this is exhausting for, for you as a parent, right? Uh, we can see many, um, many people struggling with this challenge. We're going to focus on that because uh, as your child is struggling, you probably have tried all kinds of things uh, to turn this around. And um, one thing that, that we know for sure is that uh, this can lead to a lot of ineffective thoughts um, and beliefs that hold you back. And so Nicola is here to talk to us about um, some of those beliefs that are, are born in perfectionism. <laughs> yeah, with pleasure, Megan, and I'll speak about it from uh, two angles. One, uh, that of working with hundreds of parents, uh, you know, with uh, Megan Thompson coaching, and so seeing the different flavors of that. Uh, but I will also speak about this from my own personal angle, myself being for sure one who uh, has been for a long time identifying with, oh, yes, I'm a perfectionist, and so I should be, because that is the right way. 
uh, I should be, and maybe even everybody should be. And from from that angle of living my own life, getting stuck uh, quite uh, <laughs> quite intensely, and then of course finding my own journey out of that place, which I am thrilled that you know uh, this work um, gives me the chance to share and to um, bring to other people as well. And uh, so um, basically, I Megan, I found that uh, there are. Um, four flavors you'll tell me if you have found uh, even others ones but i found four different flavors of getting into the feeling that i am i'm the wrong parent for this child i i just uh, I, it should be somebody else parenting this kid anyone but not me and uh that can get really tricky because the moment we start to slide down that path then we can really begin to feel helpless uh, disempowered uh, like not knowing what to do and that perhaps somebody else should parent this child and well that usually then takes the shape of some other professional should parent my child and that is a, a really uncomfortable scary uh, place to be for you who gave this little being alive and so um, the point of us naming these four patterns here is to see do you find yourself in any of this do you see that some of that applies to you and if you do that is a sign that okay we have some real good work here that we can do to help shift out of that because that is not uh, the final state where you have to stay stuck forever so with that being said let's go with the first uh, uh, shape that oh i'm the wrong parent typically takes and that is by the way uh, the one that i personally have identified with at a previous part in my life and that is i don't do emotions Emotions not my thing. I don't know right. what they are. I don't know how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. it. It doesn't seem very relevant, to be honest. I I rather get practical and logical. So what what is all this talking about emotions? And so, <laughs> I just love that. Is that you know, being a researcher and studier of the brain, you're like, no, no emotion. No emotion. Thanks. <laughs> These are confounding factors, right? Well until the moment where you find yourself um, parenting a child that has emotions running their life to the point that those emotions begin to run your life because as a parent you find yourself okay i no longer know what to do here i feel completely lost and that is where the maybe i'm the wrong parent right or maybe somebody else who has a degree in psychology should actually be with this child and figure out who, what to do Okay, that is that is the place where if that applies to you, I want you to, oh boy, yeah, I find myself there sometimes. And if you do find yourself there, then don't believe that that is where you are destined to stay because that is not true. Personally, I am a living uh, and ever evolving for sure, but living proof of that. And, um, and I've seen the transformation happening many many times for parents and the gender doesn't matter here like i'm not talking actually about men i'm talking about men as much as women mother father and all right that. Mm -hmm. should i continue with the second or megan no. do you want to no, here? I, I, i'm just like letting that settle right exactly because this is not um when you think about how perfectionism is is born right um part of that can be based on the way that you were parented and um you know needing to to keep it all together and and so what does that create that creates a lack of vulnerability i can't be vulnerable i can't feel feelings because if i do then um 
then there's there's no there's no going back from that and that's not safe because especially in traditional parenting uh, traditional parenting teaches children that emotions are not safe and uh, that it's our job as children to keep the adults who are in charge of us happy and so if any of us were raised in, in homes that use traditional parenting or we developed uh, a pattern where we received a lot of accolades from perfectionists or we just happen to be born with a tendency to want to get it right the first time and that's a highly sensitive component uh, that could be really relevant for a lot of the families um, listening but absolutely all uh, many of the families that we work with and um, there, there's a there's a big component of of that as well as as discomfort right and the discomfort of of trying to unlock the emotions on your own end and if your pattern was to just stuff them then of course you feel uncomfortable talking about emotions or or trying to teach your kid about emotions or out of your element um and and so this is one piece that we see because you know judging yourself for that and keeping yourself stuck in that judgment that you're you're not the right person is going to perpetuate the problem with your child and those meltdowns so um, this is one myth we want to bust, that you are the perfect parent, even if um, you're perfectionistic yourself, we can help you break out of that. That's a habit, not a personality. Beautiful. Okay, and uh, then we have what looks like the opposite end of the spectrum. And in reality, it's still the same kind of perfectionistic mindset, but it looks like for other people, I'm constantly flooded by emotions. All of my life feels like an incessant, never-ending stream of emotions. Uh, my own, my child's, my partner's, everybody's emotions are flooding me. And I am just feeling lost, like I'm feeling like I'm floating in this maelstrom of stuff that I haven't quite yet learned how to shape, how to... How to contain, how to dissipate, and how to work through for myself, let alone for you know this kind of child that doesn't even have a prefrontal cortex, and so I cannot even fully kind of have a conversation rationally with. And so, um, perhaps um, a lot of these people um, have actually learned how to work through some of that emotional turmoil in other parts of their lives maybe professionally they're very successful and they you know share how at work i can totally keep it together but man the moment i come home i just you know get overwhelmed with whatever whatever is your flavor whether it's worry panic fear or anger frustration or second guessing and doubting everything i do there is just this just feeling of emotional overflow that seems like unmanageable especially at home and therefore leads to the conclusion i guess i'm just too too worked up about this too sensitive to this somebody else please do this because this feels like too much for me right right exactly exactly so that experience of being flooded right and and this is important because when we think about the families that we help uh it's very common right you, you might be highly sensitive but or you, you might be working in the helping field as we know 70 percent of the families that we work with have at least one parent if it's a two-parent pair who are helpers they're teachers nurses doctors therapists and so um with the emotional management skills that you might have needed to to build in your profession 
uh, it can be incredibly draining, you know, because you're using that skill all day long to then have to come home and be just as skillful or even more skillful at home. Uh, and, and then there's no room for you, right? Uh, and as a parent, you need to be able to have that experience at home to, to have room for yourself to uh, relax, grow, not be perfect and um, make mistakes and apologize and, and model, et cetera. Uh, and and when that skill set that you find yourself using is is mainly just holding a lid on a boiling pot uh, to manage your your stressful emotions, we can see this play out as as reactivity in the home, uh, where you know having a hairpin trigger or just either in in yelling right because there's a lot of exhaustion going on in the household when you're when you're dealing with these meltdowns. I mean three to five times a day meltdowns that can last 20 to 30 you sometimes for some families it's 90 minutes at a, a pop right yep. there's no more time in the day <laughs> whether you work from home or not um you know work in the home or work outside of the home um that you know your whole day is shot focus on on managing meltdowns and just helping your kid not not lose it even longer and um when that's going on obviously exhaustion kicks in and dread kicks in and self-judgment going back to this perfectionism of right well, i haven't been able to turn this around uh yet what makes me qualified to try this again right and again that's a very um that's a very painful place to be um just the feeling of heaviness and helpless that one finds in that place when is our child so there is a sense of just it doesn't compute, it doesn't make sense. How is it possible that I am not able to? It feels like I'm not the person to parent this child, but uh, you know, part of you is telling, of course you are, like, of course you you, you, you made this one uh, in whatever way you made it, by the way. That includes also, <laughs> we have families that are, you know, adopting their children and still, you know, that, that uh, um, potential and possibility is there and that, um, that moments of confusion comes, and um, uh, there is um, another uh, the third for this uh, um, kind of piece of work. This third version that comes up sometimes that uh, it's a little different than these previous two in that uh, the notion of I'm the wrong parent comes from realizing that some of the things we tried in the past didn't work and may have contributed to uh, the problem. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as um, the information about highly sensitive children is still not very uh, available, it's not, for whatever reason, is not very openly accessible. Um, you know, parents go through all sorts of um, trials and errors in figuring out how to help. And uh, some of these approaches are, um, the opposite of helpful, especially when they are uh, designed for totally other forms of personalities compared to the highly sensitive trait. And so there is this scenario where, you know, from the best of intention, we tried things and we get really, really negative results, counterproductive situations. And when that happens, sometimes there is a powerful sense of guilt uh, that sets in for the parent and that kind of just triples the load of 
every subsequent step along the way because then it sets up almost uh, expecting this to never uh, never go well because I as the parent who has been looking for a solution have made it worse by means of my action and the guilt and shame that comes from that can pull us down um, and make you know this belief that I, I can figure this out when I did, when I did try, I made it even worse. Therefore, you know, I can't possibly figure this out. That kind of beliefs can set in and can uh, you know, tremendously slow down the process and kind of create a dead end experience, which is, um, it's not a reality. <laughs> you know, you can turn that around too. And there is some, you know, important emotional work to be done to, to turn that around, but, uh, we have seen that happening over and over again. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, um, you know, again, there's a big difference between beliefs and habits and personality. And uh, when you, you've engaged in different tactics and parenting, like uh, sticker charts or, um, you know, just following courses that don't work or uh, reading books that are general parenting advice compared to specific to highly sensitive kids um, or reading books specific to highly sensitive kids that don't support parents in seeing all of the possibilities. They, they kind of keep highly sensitive kids stuck in, um, and then this kind of like a general okayness as the, the, the main goal. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> Um, uh, you know, general survival outside of misery, you know, your child has grown up, but they're still living in your basement when they're 25 and, um, they have a job, but it's, it's, um, it's not the job that, that uses their entire intellect because emotionally they can't manage that. And, um, emotionally they can't manage being on their own. So this isn't a, a choice to live in your basement because, uh, they're saving money and they have big lofty goals to right. buy this house outright and um, and they have a plan. It's, it's you know, I just can't handle one more thing on my plate. So mom and dad, can I stay with you still? And um, that that is an expectation from some people who have written books on, on highly sensitive kids and uh, a totally fine one. You know, the, the, the failure to thrive, failure to launch um, is, is pervasive in, in a belief of what's possible for highly sensitive young adults. And that's yeah. uh, incredibly important to observe when we think about how your tactics, um, what, what theories your tactics stem from, right? Um, what perspectives of, of shifting uh, your parenting uh, approach and how you're leading your child, um, you know, what principles is the author following? And um, what beliefs do they have about what's possible for sensitive people? And so when we think about that, um, obviously, uh, if you're following directives that aren't even relevant to highly sensitive people like traditional parenting, which isn't relevant to any child, if you ask me, but, um, uh, but absolutely and significantly damaging to sensitive kids, yeah. uh, lecturing, shaming, corporal punishment, sticker charts, even behavior-based um, modification, all that stuff keeps kids in um, out of the realm of, of feeling motivated from their own heart and uh, wanting to feel better, but rather trying to feel better to please other people. And uh, that's not sustainable, right? Because if you're a parent who's judging yourself for not being perfect and you're trying to use strategies that teach your kid that the only way that they can succeed is if they keep other people happy, 
you've just perpetuated the cycle of perfectionism in your home. Yep. And so, of course, uh, the tactics that you might be using or the approach that you're taking to help your child change, which could also be in, in terms of using an external resource like a mentor or a therapist um, to be the, the, the person who is, is the catalyst for change, um, that also isn't effective when we think about how highly sensitive kids learn and how highly sensitive kids digest information. They do the best of that through their parents. So this is why we're covering perfectionism so thoroughly today. Because if you are the caregiver of your child and you're stuck in this self-judgment, then your child's picking up that uh, message from you as well. And um, it, it's significantly impactful um, in their belief about what's possible for them. Totally. And uh, speaking about believing what is possible for them, um, there is this fourth type of Maybe I'm the wrong parent for this kid. And the first is a little bit more subtle because it's not so much about um, I, there is something wrong with me, the parent, but it's maybe this parent, this child is so sensitive that I and nobody with a kind of just normal sensitivity can possibly parent them. Sometimes <laughs> when we don't understand how the you know the whole trade works and how we are playing into that it feels like this kid is just reacting to the subtlest most insignificant little qq ever and so it feels like you cannot even raise your eyebrows half millimeter that all of a sudden they are you know going from from zero to 60 and uh, trashing and yelling and screaming and it feels like oh my goodness like this is this is impossible I, how can one possibly be so in control of every single little detail of their tone and face and all of that? This seems like madness. Uh, and so I must be the wrong parent here, not so much because there is something wrong with me, but because there must be something wrong in them mm -hmm. that makes this relationship impossible. And so I guess somebody else who has maybe you know, a robot face or trained every single, you know, tone, then maybe that's the only way in which this child can ever be related to. And that is again another stuck point that's a myth that is actually not true. There is a bigger picture that is happening underneath the seeming absurdity of this micro interaction and, you know, uncovering and decoding the bigger picture is you know is necessary to understand how uh, you're not the wrong parent they are not the wrong child there is nobody here wrong but you know there is missing pieces in how we are uh, working together through you know the whole uh, relationship and this is and this is doable you don't have to be a robot you don't have to gain control on every single detail of your eyebrow to uh you know be able to, or your tone of voice at every single time to be able to effectively you know raise a highly sensitive confident child i know megan what's been your experience coaching parents around this yeah exactly um because what's going on is that um you know the word you used which is this isn't normal right mm. and when we think about comparing sensitive kids to non-highly sensitive kids or to the non-highly sensitive personality um the 
the, the 80% who are, who are not highly sensitive can look at a highly sensitive child, especially at, at such a high level of stress and think, this is how my kid is. Um, this is their personality. This is part of the personality The meltdowns and the personality are synonymous. And since I can't be perfect with a, with an, and the perception of perfection is walking on eggshells to the max, right? Like, Basically, you know, yeah. Trying to like float above the floor <laughs> with perfectionism, <laughs> you know, um, levitate yourself in your own home so, that, exactly. so as to not, uh, you know, disturb the, the, um, the, the crackly floor and um, let alone demonstrate any, uh, any, any emotional experience uh in your own home and uh that obviously is a symptom of the meltdown cycle this is not your child right. this is a this is your child exhibiting significant symptoms of the meltdown cycle and uh those symptoms guess what they go away when you address them in an effective way and um and so it's important to understand as a parent uh to that 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 you're that in order to break out of the meltdown cycle, you cannot judge your child's capacity uh, for change and, and, and their needs based on how explosive they are, based on how hairpinned their trigger is. <laughs> it's not the right word, but <laughs> based on how sensitive their trigger is because hypersensitivity um, compared, uh, it sorry, paired with hypervigilance becomes extreme sensitivity and hypervigilance is a symptom of the meltdown cycle always on edge irritability annoyance aggravation so we see parents who come in and, and they say oh you know my kid's not having daily meltdowns and we find out actually you know in our in our initial phone call um that that they're walking on eggshells all day long to kind of keep that together that so yeah. if <laughs> you're like yes this is the thing <laughs> a lot of our parents are dealing with so we're not just measuring when we think about the meltdown cycle how frequent the meltdowns are you know that can be happening a couple times a week but um if you were yourself as a parent if you were relaxed if you weren't um you know buttoned up and buckled in how many more meltdowns would you be having mm -hmm. And um, that belief that your kid can't handle anything but perfectionism is a perfectionistic belief. And that's going to keep you stuck. And, and, and so when we think about being able to, to, um, to, to break out of this pattern, it's incredibly important that you stop judging your kid um, and their capacity based on their current behavior, right? So it's kind of like when we think about I don't know if I have, maybe you have a better metaphor, Nicolo, but I'll roll with what's in my brain. Because um, I, I don't like to, in, to indicate that the, the, so the meltdown cycle indicates a broken component in the family function. All right. So let's use that because your kid's not broken. All yeah. right. Um, but when the fam, the whole family is in, in, um, in the meltdown cycle, because this is a family dynamic issue, uh, then the system is broken. All right. And so when we think about this from like the concept of a broken arm, right? Let's just get tangible. This is a broken, broken arm I have right here. And um, when, you're, when you're trying to move your fingers and wiggle them, uh, but your arm is broken, right? Um, and it's broken uh, for those of you who are catching this on a podcast and not the YouTube channel or Facebook or whatever. Um, 
uh, I'm, I'm pointing to my upper above the elbow. Um, this is where it's broken. Okay. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I don't know what bone that is. So, um, this is where it's broken. Your, your arm is kind of dangling and I'll, I'll stay out of the gore here. Um, it, you can't judge the function of your fingers and what's possible for your fingers. Okay. And how effective you are at holding a scalpel, for example, perhaps you're a surgeon, you're born to be a surgeon, but you can't, you can't hold um, the scalpel effectively in that hand with those fingers. If between your elbow and your shoulder, there's a break in the bone, there's going to be some wincing involved. There's going to be some uh, pain, some yelping involved when you try to hold a scalpel. Okay. Or um, a fine toothed uh, pen, you know, if I find a, fi you know, finding to pen and write beautifully in cursive, right? Whatever skill, fine motor skill that we're focusing on here, that's neither here nor there. What I'm focusing on is noticing that if you're judging your kid and comparing them to like how well their, their fingers can hold something, but their arm is, is broken. That's the family system. That's not working in an effective way. That's helping them stay out of emotional pain because it's incredibly painful to be in the meltdown cycle for your child. It's like going through life without skin. Mm. And the, the viewpoint of what's possible is significantly altered, right? I mean, all you can see is, is the fingers just not being capable of, of holding something with such a tight grip because there's a muscle impacted by a break in a bone, you know, three quarters of the way up the arm. So, but if, if, you know, if you're not, if you're not, um, learned in that, then you might think, okay, let's go take my kid to a hand surgeon. Let's go take my kid to, um, you know, to, to OT, to have them hope, help their, right. their grip, right? Calligraphy and, uh, course. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a better metaphor because, you know, we work with OTs on our team at, at MTC. So it's not, uh, <laughs> it's not a great metaphor comparison, but yeah, exactly. Let's, let's have my kid practice more. Mm -hmm. Thank you. See, I, this is why it's not just me running the show here. Um, the let's practice more holding that, that pretty little pen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. When we're we're not addressing the the reason why it's hard to grip yeah. in the first place, that's the root we're talking about here. And so part of that root is you as a parent, right? This is one part of the puzzle. You as a parent, um, stuck in thinking that you are not the one who is supposed to teach your kid. Yeah. Yeah. What the metaphor you're bringing up to me also reveals how sometimes the solute quotes solutions that we try to find uh, not only clearly do not solve the problem but end up exacerbating symptoms mm -hmm. um i was thinking as you were talking about broken bones and painful arms i was thinking about <laughs> the 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 low back uh, low back pain example um uh, um, which is a situation where well, one example of how it comes up is right there is this weakening in the muscle of the back and then everything gets really 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 stiff as the body attempts to protect the kind of the the traumatized area and and then what we at some point think that we should do it okay i need to do more low back exercise i need to strengthen my lower back and we start to do all sorts of exercises that in a matter of a couple of weeks have 
tripled the pain and have made you even more stuck than what you uh, than what you were at the beginning and um, another example of that okay I, I i have low back pain so i guess i will need to uh, move less get some rest and sit a lot Another example, another sure recipe to make it go worse in the shortest amount of time possible. When when you actually need to do is look at more systemically what is going on, what is going on in those abdominal muscles and leg muscles that are so weak that are not holding the body together and such that the lower back is taking on all this lack and trying to keep the body up from a place that is not meant to be. But you see, you find the solution only when you look um, outside of the symptomatic area and see at the broader system and you intervene in points that some, sometimes are completely different than what the symptom itself looks like. Whereas the intervention on the symptom in and of itself make it worse. And it doesn't make sense. And the perfectionistic part of us just get completely nuts because it seems like you're doing the right thing. You're doing it vigilantly with, you know, with intention, with effort and thing not only do not get better, but sometimes even get worse. Mind blowing. Yes, exactly. And, um, that, that problem, uh, can be, um, supported by reactive tactics and, and even professionals who set up these reactive tactics who follow a reactive tactic model. Um, and so when we think about what that means, it means talking to pediatricians who tell you to go do uh, a, a behaviorist uh, mm -hmm. approach like sticker charts, mm -hmm. rewards, um, points in the house. Right. It, talks, it you know, focuses on um, you know, a, a pure behavior modification model um, approach to uh, professionals who might be in either the therapy field, the occupational therapy field, speech therapy field, right? So I say the first one was mental health therapy, right. all of that, none of that's going to work. And not um, to mention the random friend who uh, wholeheartedly suggests that you should just crack down on discipline and uh, yeah. it's just uh, stop giving the kid free passes, you know. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your neighbors watch these meltdowns happen as you're mm -hmm. trying to get your kid in the car, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, their backhanded comment or front-handed comment could be, you know, hey, more timeouts worked well for me, you know, um, or, or anything of the sort. Uh, rolling eyes, looking at you like you know what what do you got going on here why aren't you in charge mm -hmm. and obviously uh that doesn't work taking the advice or taking the criticism um of somebody who hasn't helped people break out of the pattern mm -hmm. is going to continue to keep you in the, the self-judging component of perfectionism but you're not good enough um to solve this problem and to serve your kid into emotional freedom and um you know, that emotional freedom means that they don't have a hairpin trigger. You can be sensitive, you can emotionally experience big emotions throughout your day, but that doesn't mean that it triggers you to react. Yeah. Those two things don't go hand in hand um, unless you're stuck in the meltdown cycle. And um, parents have to have to make this shift, right? So, you know, obviously when we work with parents directly, Nicolo, um, let's cover you know what what's available to parents when they make this shift uh, you know, obviously we'll talk about our particular clients in that in that sense because that's what we're privy to yeah. um 
and breaking out of this pattern. But once you stop walking on eggshells, um, start seeing what's truly possible for your kid and, and the fact that just going to the park on a daily basis isn't, isn't where you stop dreaming. Totally. Well, what's possible is um, confidence in knowing that you, you have a plan and that you're doing what you need to be doing to support your child in a way that leverages his being highly sensitive as opposed to eggshelling around and trying to kind of bubble wrapping because of the highly sensitive, highly sensitive trait being uh, playing playing out as a weakness as a liability so confidence in knowing that you're doing uh you know what your child needs and and what's beautiful is that you get to play to some of the strengths that are underneath uh, the perfectionistic trait, because let's recognize that there is, there is leverage, there is strength in that as well. Uh, if you know, one way to break down the perfectionistic trait is to uh, talk about three components. One is called the concern over mistakes. One is called the doubt about actions. One is called organization. Okay, and so when we look at how these three correlate with um, mental health outcomes, we see that the first two are a strong, reliable predictor of depression and anxiety. The more we are concerned about mistake, and so we, the more we frame what we do to begin with as a mistake, and we kind of emotionally get triggered by that and get reacted with that, and without our action, the more anxiety and depression we experience. However, the organization piece per se is a protective component with respect to both depression and anxiety. So having a plan, knowing what you what you're doing, and have being strategic about it, which is part of what plays into the perfectionistic trade, can serve you really well the moment you detach it, that you unglue it from this intense concern and doubt about mistakes and basically everything that is going on. And so the moment you leverage the organization piece that as a perfectionist person, some of us uh, sometimes bring, you leverage that and you bring it together with confidence in what you're doing and how you're understanding what you're doing, you're out of the stuck that the perfectionistic cycle keeps you in with respect to depression and anxiety. And then you are able to play to the strengths that you know each of us that to some extent you know identify as sometimes being perfectionistic can can bring to the table without getting bogged down into the swamp of the concerns and the, you know the doubt and the second guessing and judging yeah exactly so just um i love that that just what you just said right there it just drags you into the swamp <laughs> keeps you stuck in the mud right mm -hmm. and so when we think about being able to rest in a strategy um, rather than staying stuck in reactivity the strategy uh, the support of following a strategy um, rather than just being reactive starting to use tactics throwing things at the wall to see what sticks um, allows people to stay curious in um, and how they're learning to apply a strategy right rather than worrying about getting it right the first time 
because when you're stuck in reactive tactics, like, you know, hey, there's a cute little blog that I looked at on Pinterest about how my kids should learn how to take deep breaths and it involves bubbles. <laughs> and um, I better make sure that I get bubbles that are actually going to blow. I <laughs> played bubbles <laughs> with my seven year old in the backyard. He got so mad right. <laughs> that the bubbles didn't blow, right? Because it's, you know, those wands are cheap and seven year olds don't blow all the way effectively. The spit pops the bubble in the in the in the wand before it actually goes through. And and so then you're trying to teach deep breaths with a frustrated child. Yeah. So so when you carry all of your success onto a tactic, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a much heavier weight around the fear of success. I mean, the fear of mistakes. Fear of mistakes. Yeah. And um, and and so having to get it right the first time feels imperative because that bubble wand might get thrown halfway across the yard and your dog might pick it up and and then you're just you know then the whole afternoon is shot yeah yeah and that's a classic example of a pattern that will prevent you from moving forward like that fear of getting it right the first time that is exactly what is keeping the family system including you and the child kind of stuck and so that is what um you know we need to kind of work out of Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. um, and so then in being able to release that because you know you follow follow a plan um, you can and when you work with experts you can learn um, that your question experts who solve the meltdown cycle problem um, you know our clients they learn quickly uh, actually it's okay for me to not have all the answers mm -hmm. before I get moving totally. Totally. Um, so they break out of the emotion seeking perfectionism. I'm sorry, the information seeking um, perfectionism too. Yeah, yeah. That freedom from having to know all the answers uh, while at the same time you're moving from a science-based system. So you're not just um, floating in, in the void, but you have a system and you have the freedom to not have to know all the answers. That is what opens up mega information curiosity and so it opens up that kind of ability to um, see what actually is happening and work with what is happening as it is happening. And that flexibility, that kind of ability to um, flexibly uh, adjust and work with the nuance of every situation um, basically makes for that ability to handle no matter what is the challenge and if the bubble doesn't 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 bleep doesn't blop doesn't pop <laughs> you're able to handle that <laughs> and if the weather and if the weather is not the way it was supposed to be you're able to handle that and if the, the birthday present doesn't turn out to be what you know the child hope to be you're able to handle that and you don't have to have all of this beforehand because you can see, you know, as I'm playing with this example, these are infinite scenarios that you need to be ready to handle. And you can't possibly have the exact strategy tactics out uh, beforehand for each of those. You will need to be able to um, work with what is happening. And that involves, you know, being willing to not have all the answer beforehand, but work through the emergence 
you know, from a sense of confidence and knowing that even if you don't know all the answer, you have what you need to find it out at every single case, you know, predictably and confidently. I love this. I love this. The, the, um, I like to, you've heard me liken what we do to teaching parents to speak the foreign language of highly sensitive child, mm -hmm. right? While your highly sensitive child is learning to speak their own language, <laughs> emotional language, emotional safety, and uh, you're the one teaching them. So it's kind of like, and Nicolo, uh, we can use you as an example. I'm sure you'll appreciate me using you as a guinea pig. English is not your first language. Right. And, um, and when we're thinking about the fact that you need to be fluent in English in order to teach it to your kids, mm -hmm. um, the, the concept of having learned as a parent a language first and or simultaneously say for example your kids were older and they were learning english at the same time you were um there would need to be some immersive experience on your end to pick it up Absolutely. quote unquote faster than them in order to start speaking english to your children and this is this is the um this is the metaphor that that i like to use with our clients because um your child is starting to learn that language of their own emotional experience right now they are they're speaking gobbledygook <laughs> that's what that is ah, scream plop throw hit mm. kick <laughs> this is this is the language of chaos and so as you start to be the one who's teaching your child that language that allows them to learn faster because they're in an immersive experience yeah. because who are they more immersive with than you at home as a parent you can't immerse in learning a foreign language an hour a week beautiful yeah um you can't as a parent and neither can your kid you know go into a session themselves um, and so in order to immerse um you know i can imagine if your your parents were learning english at the same time you were um, but you would need to have some certainty that your parents were ahead of it than you were if you were younger, right? Yeah. So, you know, we can take the earlier metaphor where you're the one teaching your kids, maybe a higher reference there. Um, but um, just understanding that and, and, and noticing uh, that as a parent of a highly sensitive child, uh, that foreign language has to be taught to the parents and the children. And the children need to learn through the parents. Like if what you are experiencing is what we're talking about, namely you know the meltdown cycle related to a highly sensitive person, this will change with an immersive experience of a different relational dynamic, and it will not change one hour every two weeks of work with somebody else. It will not. It needs an immersive experience, and the, the language metaphor finds me totally on you know on board with that. Uh, and and the immersive experience is true for all the parties involved. So the child needs the ex immersive experience that only you, as the ch parents, can provide um, him or her. So this is why you are. This is one of the reasons why you are the person to do this work. You are the right person. You are in the right place at the right time to do this work with them in your home, in your daily interactions. At the same time, as you are also learning the language you also need an immersive experience. And uh, well, myself, you know, 
you know, I, I would definitely immerse myself like I have when I needed to learn English, and I continue to immerse myself in my, you know, continued improvement of English by living with my wife, who is a, <laughs> you know, mother tongue. Now, basically, the work we do here at NTC is the closest approximation <laughs> to that. So we're not going to come and live in your house. We will not do that, no. No. but the support that we provide is meant mm -hmm. to provide as an immersive experience as it is uh, realistic and feasible and sane to do for you to learn that language, which is also why you can't pick this up from a book. Uh, even if the book says all the right things, this is not going to go anywhere. Just like you're not going to pick up a language from you know, reading uh, some good instructional book that is going to be at best, you know, a, a thin coating of some kind of picking up a couple of words as far as the language and communicating that takes you an immersive experience, which is exactly how, you know, this the, the work that we do here is set up to be. Yeah. And, and you know, building that confidence, knowing that anybody can learn to speak the language of a highly sensitive child, because this wasn't innate for me. Um, there were some components that once I learned the science behind uh, how highly sensitive kids became explosive, then I became the Shannon whisperer in my home with my sister. Mm -hmm. um, but before that, I was the, I was just as guilty, if that you want to use that word, just as ineffective um, in my family dynamic growing up at blaming my sister for her drama, blaming my sister for, for her overreactions, right? And, and that's obviously judgmental language, but that's just how uh, somebody who's not highly sensitive can interpret a, a highly sensitive person right. um, without skills. And so then when we think about the fact that if I was able to learn it, um, then, then you can certainly learn it too as a parent. And um, we can make that heck of a lot shorter than the decades of, of experience that I have and, and all of that because we've hacked the system, right? And so um, the, the immersive experience can be quicker too. And it doesn't need to take years and years and years. Because obviously, um, sure, you can get your kid, a, a, you know, we'll stay in the metaphor that um, babble a fish or Duolingo app and say, yeah, go ahead, kid, like go you know, go learn French, right? And um, you're not going to be able to tell if they're speaking French effectively, <laughs> if you're not also trying to learn French, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and that's harder to do with a computer system with no feedback, no, no, no gauge, right? Or, uh, and it's harder to do without an immersive experience. And it's harder to do with an immersive experience without you on board maintaining that progress because we're talking about raising children here yeah when you have your kid that that has a skill emotional management is not a skill like riding the bike where you pick it up and then you don't do it for a really long time and then you're you know you can you can pick it back up later emotional management is a skill like learning a foreign language if you stop my husband's ukrainian so, um, you know, he's gone to, he, he did immersive experiences like Ukrainian Boy Scouts, Ukrainian church, all that stuff. His mom spoke Ukrainian, um, in the home, uh, and, and he lost a lot of it because he doesn't speak much of it. Um, but at family events. Right. And so, um, because we don't have a lot of it, his extended family local. And so there's, that's the metaphor that is much more effective to, to consider how your child needs to learn and, 
And um, that experience has to happen in the home, has to happen through the parent-child relationship, um, even just in understanding that metaphor. Um, that's a no-brainer. But we take this and we move this into science. We move it into research. We understand how highly sensitive people have been researched for the last 30 plus years, particularly. Um, you know, if you look at the research when sensory processing sensitivity was named in the 90s by Dr. Elaine Aaron, but even prior to that, when sensory sensitivity was identified by Carl Jung in his research and in his writings in 1920s, and by Marsha Linehan um, in, in her mental health research uh, in the 1960s. And here we are um, in, in 2022 and noticing that there's plenty of information out there. But reading a book about how to speak English or how to speak French doesn't teach you how to speak English or how to speak French. No. So what does what, what do parents need to focus on, right? We, we need to focus on understanding um, the fact that you as the parent are the catalyst, the change agent for your child. That is, that is uh, irrefutable in the research. And um, if perfectionism is standing in the way of that, then no problem, we're experts on that. <laughs> um, because highly sensitive kids without skills start to develop um, uh, tendencies to become perfectionistic. So we, we are experts in helping perfectionists break out of that perfectionist pattern. Um, the next thing is, is being able to observe that you need to be playful, right? And, um, and breaking out of that uh, uh, black and white thinking perspective that um, you aren't the one to, to do it. It must be somebody else. We need to get curious about that. We need to, we need to get, um, we need to challenge uh, that belief. Is it based in science? Is it based in fact? Is it based in, in results? Yeah. Or is it just based in an emotion? Yeah. Uh, Megan, you mentioned being playful as one of the you know, axes of the work. It's, um, it's been beautiful to witness how the initial reaction that uh, somebody who comes from a perfectionist identity um, initial reaction that they have to the idea of being playful you know there is this initial uh, this initial kind of cringing tensing like what are we talking about like what do you mean being playful yeah. like and then how that experience for the families we work with you know it literally melts over down over time and how this becomes something that, of course, has been there all along. It was, you know, very powerful for everybody. You know, it's one of the innate strengths that we have. It's one of the driver of learning. And so that's how we, we get to learn all of us. And, and then at some point for some of us that kind of has been kind of um, cut out uh, as if something kind of just uh, uh, irrelevant, basically, or even um, detrimental, perhaps. And how that, you know, gets illuminated uh, in the early part of the work and how that then kind of breaks down, melts away and how this apparent dichotomy between uh, high standards and effective organization and, you know, good strategy on one side and playfulness, how this apparent separation just fades and there is this ability of being playful and being 
strategic and organized, uh, you know, and pursuing high standards. This just totally boom makes sense yeah. and fit together in a shape that before was mentally as well as just emotionally and physically was just unthinkable and was out of the field of what could be experienced. So that's something beautiful that I see related to playfulness, perfectionism playing out in this work. Exactly. And when you think about it, um, this isn't this isn't a paradigm shift to um, like just to, to, to go straight from perfectionism to uh, loosey-goosey. That's not what we're talking about here. There's science behind play. Right. Right. And, and play is the language of children. So, of course, we need to teach you guys how to speak that language, right? And, um, and to do that from a highly sensitive standpoint rather than a, a non-highly sensitive child standpoint. And then children who have a hard time playing relaxing also need to learn that. Yep. Highly sensitive kids can be stuck in their um, talking, thinking brain, and that's an anxious brain. Yeah. An anxious brain. And um, the experience that sensitive kids need to be able to be imaginative. Uh, we've seen countless, I mean, our, um, uh, one of our clients, uh, Danielle and Jeff from, from years ago, um, after, as their child, as they were getting ready to graduate boot camp, um, mom asks, you know, hey, and I just noticed uh, my daughter, she started playing um, mm. more in, in, in imagination. And she's getting more imaginative in her play. Is this something that you've seen before? Mm. And I said, yeah, that's the result we want. You know, your daughter was stuck in, I can't, I won't, I, I don't know how. Um, and relaxed children play consistently and uh, more thoroughly with more imagination. And so um, the experience of being able to watch your child creatively solve their problems doesn't just come into play when they don't want to wear a sweater outside and it's 20 degrees out. It, it comes into how big of an imagination the highly sensitive child is capable of, of, of engaging with in their own brain and how we grow that, right? And, and, and how the brain is plastic. Uh, the brain is um, moldable. It's not rigid like steel. <laughs> and, um, and, and we have a lot of, of, awareness around the fact that that is also true for you as an adult, um, that there's science behind play and that there's strategy behind play. And you don't have to be innately playful to, uh, to break out of this pattern of the meltdown cycle. You can learn from people who have taught quote unquote, not innately people, innately playful people to become playful. Um, I don't think I've shared the story before. Uh, but uh, at least not in this context, um, my first job out of grad school was when the bubble burst in 2009. And um, it took like six months for me to get a position because I was working on finding a position with adolescents. And those are like, that's a subset of what's available. Tons of positions to, you know, mental health uh, for adults, right? And I just, that was not what I wanted to do. So I had really narrowed my focus from the beginning. I, I knew, um, you know, from uh, eighth grade that I was going to work with teenagers. And so uh, come grad school, many, many years later, uh, I, I've, I've narrowed my focus. This is where I want to go. And I accepted a position that required me to travel. And two days later, 
I got a position to work with young children um, as a play therapist, studying under play therapists who had been working in the field for 20 years um, each. Uh, several of the leaders in this really significant um, uh, system that I was invited to work in and um, outside of the DC area. And because it didn't include travel, there was a highlight there. And they were like, okay, we'll, we'll throw you a bone. We'll let you work with like five teenagers on your caseload. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like we could probably have some overage here. It was a, um, a community services board. So it was a government uh, system. They served families um, uh, that run the gamut in, in all kinds of circumstances. And um, they knew that they could, they could figure out my caseload and, and, and make that happen for me. And I said, all right, you know, let's do it. And with that being said, I was like, I am not an innately playful person, <laughs> you know, uh, babysitter. I was like, Hey kids go play. Like I'll watch you from wh where I sit. Well, you know, and can I be reading a book please? <laughs> um, and uh, this is why I didn't babysit often as a kid. I went to other means of professional employment when I was young. Um, but uh, back to my, back to my piece here where that skill was easily built upon science and skills and exactly what to say when <laughs> before I started to become more intuitive and relaxed in that process and being able to, mm -hmm. to lighten up, if you will. Um, so if that can be taught to a clearly parentified type A perfectionist, <laughs> like I was back in the day, um, then you too can learn as well. Um, those of you who are listening, uh, that ability to break out of this pattern is absolutely something that can be taught. It's a habit, uh, not a personality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? How do you do that, guys? You book a call with our team, break out of this pattern, okay? Move into playfulness, stop using shame and, and uh, lecturing and, and hard-nosed uh, approaches to teaching your children. They don't learn that way. It doesn't actually work. It's not research-backed. Um, follow a system that actually works. And if the system that we have, uh, that we've designed here at MTC, is relevant for your family, uh, which I don't know yet, <laughs> we, we would have to figure that out on a phone call. So go ahead and, and book a call with our team. Or if you're a teenager, and teenagers can be playful too, right? Teenagers who are stuck in their houses, uh, you know, wanting to curl up in bed, uh, their playfulness is sitting on the desk, you know, that sketchbook that they've been ignoring for the last six months to a year. Uh, that's their playfulness, and your team needs to be engaging in that way as well. And we, we address this problem uh, with, with stuck teenagers as well. Um, and, and if what we do is going to work for you, we'll talk about that on the phone call. But first, we have to figure out where your, what your challenges are. Uh, what is your family struggling with? Is what we do relevant here? And um, if your goals are in alignment with the, the freedoms that we help our clients create in their own homes, then we share with you exactly what to, to expect on that phone call, how to break out of that pattern right then and there on that one phone call. And that allows you to make a change immediately because haven't you been waiting long enough to try to solve this problem? Have you been trying to fix this problem on your own without support ineffectively for years now? And there's no judgment in that. A lot of people will try that method. It just doesn't work when you're stuck in the daily meltdown cycle. So here at MTC, if what we do works, we talk about that. If it's not relevant, 
to your particular family's needs because of some other extenuating factors, then we break through uh, the conversation with you on, on what your challenges might be. And we, we teach you what, what skill sets you need to learn and what professionals you need to seek. Because quite frankly, when you're in the meltdown cycle and you have a sensitive kid or your kid with big emotions and perhaps they're not sensitive, which is where that might not be a fit for us, uh, professional support is absolutely relevant at this point because no child was put on the, the, this earth to be miserable. No family was put on this earth to be miserable. And uh, it's in everybody's best interest that you solve it early uh, because habits do become personalities uh, when there's no way out. All right. Thank you, Mikolo, so much for joining us. And Thank you, Megan. I'll see you soon. <laughs> and then, um, again, guys, uh, always a pleasure to speak with you. We look forward to speaking with you soon and uh, talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining me on this episode of How to Parent Your Highly Sensitive Child Like a Ninja. We release a brand new episode every week, so be sure to click subscribe. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you're a fit to work with us at MTC, here's what I want you to do next. Head on over to meganthompsoncoaching.com backslash call and book an appointment with our team. We'll get on the phone for about 60 minutes and we'll get you clarity on where you're stuck in parenting your sensitive child or teen, what your goals are for supporting your child's development. And if we can help you, we'll get you started on knowing exactly what to do to eliminate that meltdown cycle. Eliminating the daily meltdown cycle does not happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. And we've helped hundreds of clients from all over the world end that cycle in as little as eight weeks. So to see if we can help you do the same, head on over to meganthompsoncoaching.com backslash call. I'm Megan Thompson, and we look forward to speaking to you soon.